Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Mark, how are you doing today? Doing great, doing great, and uh, appreciate you inviting me on the show and look forward to the conversation. Absolutely. Really happy to have you on, Mark. Um, do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? All right. So, I, you know, I, I never do short very well, so I'll, I'll That's try. All right. Yeah. Um, but look, I my, the, the really short version is I, I grew up on the other coast. I grew up up in Seattle. Uh, moved away in high school, went to a bunch of different high schools, hated my parents. I've forgiven them now. Uh, kind of actually taught me how to meet people, but uh, didn't like it at the time. Uh, ended up at Notre Dame, studied architecture, didn't like that, switched to pre-med, decided not to go to med school, went to business school right out of undergrad, which I don't recommend, but for me, it was great because I had no accounting or finance or investment training. Uh, and then, you know, began what I call a series of happy accidents or divine intervention, whatever you want to call it. So took a job at an insurance company, the guy who was doing investments retired. So I got into investments, started doing bonds, very boring, but, but did bonds. Um, now bonds are interesting. There's all kinds yeah. of bonds. There's junk <laughs> bonds and convertible bonds. And back then it was his treasuries and, and a few other things, but although we did some fun stuff in housing bonds, but. Then I went to work for an equity firm called Disciplined Investment Advisors, got my first exposure to quant and value. And really, I think value is a genetic trait. You're either a value person or gotcha. you're not. And that doesn't make you good or bad. I think right. it's just different. And uh, I'm a value guy. And so I, I discovered my genetic bias, and which is challenging at times when, when you start talking about big ideas, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But... Uh, from there, actually got the call to go back to the alma mater, uh, went back to Notre Dame, worked in the endowment office, and then came down here to North Carolina, as we both sit here in North Carolina, yeah. uh, a long time ago now, 23 years ago, came down and took over UNC's endowment and built that up through a series of uh, kind of transformations away from a traditional 60-40 portfolio to a more diversified endowment-like portfolio and had a blast doing that. I use the basketball analogy, right? My first year down here, everything was a reverse tomahawk slam. I mean, everything <laughs> we did made us look good. It was working great. Second year had to do layups. Third year had to take a free throw. Not until year four did we have to take a jump shot. And really by year five, maybe a couple three-pointers. But it was super easy early on because we added hedge funds and venture capital and private equity and had a lot of fun. Left there in 04, started Morgan Creek. We were a traditional RIA and investment manager, consultant, advisor, uh, turned into a fund to fund shop in hedge funds and venture capital. And then I got uh, bit by the crypto light. I should say I saw the crypto light, got bit by the crypto bug uh, back in 2013, but I'm dumb, right? It took me four years. Well, it took me four <laughs> years to kind of see what had been handed to me uh, in 2013 by my friend, Dan Moorhead, 
Um, and look, you know, he gave it to me on a silver platter and I was not running drugs on Silk Road. I was not a <laughs> cryptography student. Right. I just didn't get it. And yeah. it's sad. I was joke. I was, you know, presented with Bitcoin the same month as the Winklevoss twins. They're multi-billionaires and I'm not because uh, they saw it. And I didn't. But uh, four years ago, I really did get it and started Morgan Creek Digital. And now I spend all my time in the digital asset space doing venture capital and, and investing in liquid protocols. So I told you I don't do short well. So big <laughs> no, that's ideas, great. look, big ideas. My, my, my biggest idea is crypto, right? And, yeah. and what I mean by crypto is broad based, right? Blockchain technology applied to value. So value over internet protocol is the biggest idea, I think, of this century, certainly the biggest of, of my lifetime. Uh, it's the biggest wealth creation opportunity I'm going to see in the rest of my career. And I plan to be around a long time. I got a 10-year-old. I got to work for a long time. So uh, all that's good. But I, I think value being bi-directional using a three-dimensional ledger that is blockchain gotcha. is truly transformational technology. And all the businesses that, that come up around that are just going to be extraordinary. And again, another big idea is look, the internet changed everything for media and commerce. It's great. We use it every day. Right. Still a long road to go. Lots of opportunity. But blockchain changes financial services because it right. makes the value bi-directional. And financial services is big, right? Equity market's big. Bond market's bigger. Currency market's bigger. Derivatives market, monster. Huge. Like mind-blowingly huge. Yeah. And my biggest big idea is that every stock, every bond, every currency, every commodity, every piece of real estate, every collectible car, every case of fine wine, every private business, every wedding certificate, every driver's license, every everything will be digital. All of it. All 700 trillion with a T dollars of assets in the world will be digital and will trade over blockchains globally, seamlessly, 24-7, borderlessly in the metaverse. So there, I got all the buzzwords into one big idea. <laughs> and uh, we can talk about anything you want. I, I love that. I love that. You know, my first question, it, it's almost a meta level question. I, I love talking to people like you. You know, I was talking to Anson Dorrance's son recently. And uh, one of my big questions I had for him is, you know, how is Anson so good at finding alpha? You know what I mean? So Anson Dorrance is UNC's women's soccer coach. He's like the winningest coach in all of history. And, you know, it's a very competitive field. Finances also, markets are very competitive. Um, how do you go about thinking about finding $20 bills on the sidewalk, finding alpha? Is it a systemic thing? Do you think it's just something you're born with? Like you said, like, you know, the value thing, like you're just good at identifying that. Yeah, no, no. That's a fantastic question. And look, I, I love Anson Dorrance. He is, yeah. he is one of the great coaches in history. And to your point, his ability to identify talent and bring that talent together is almost unparalleled. I guess there is one guy wrestling coach, maybe at Iowa yeah. state or something like that, who actually has more national titles than Anson, but right. it's, you know, those two guys are, are just incredible. And um, it's funny. I, I had this experience. I got to, to talk to the other coach here in, yeah. in the research triangle that you know, <laughs> Smith, the legend, yeah. Roy Williams, the legend, 
And this other guy who is we... retiring this year, who, yeah, who shall not be named. No, no. Yes. I, I have incredible admiration and respect for Coach K. Yeah. I may not like Duke basketball because I'm a Carolina fan. Yeah. But but here's the thing. I had the chance to speak to Coach K a number of years ago. Yeah. And about halfway through the conversation, you know, Mark, we have the same job. I'm like, ha, okay, <laughs> Coach, humor me. What do what I have in common with maybe the greatest basketball coach of all time? Right. Yeah. I don't get it. I don't see it. He says, well, let's think about it. We both try to identify talent. Okay. We try to recruit that talent. We try to bring yep. that talent together, form a team. We drop a game plan. We put the players on the court and we sit down. Right. Holy shit. I had the same job as Coach K. <laughs> yeah. and, and it was awesome because my job, to your point, for years, I said I had the best job in the world. I got yeah. paid to talk to the smartest people in the world. And if yep. I couldn't learn something, if I couldn't find some, some great opportunities, and I was an allocator, right? I allocated capital, either on behalf of universities or wealthy families or pensions to other external managers. Right. And then I would sit down and I would let them take the shots. Now, today, I'm a little different. Now, I actually take shots. I, by building a team around me, we go out at Morgan Creek Digital and we make investments in companies. We back founders, but it's the same process. We're still right. trying to identify talent, identify alpha. And Anson, things that are unique. One, right? He uh, has the benefit of pattern recognition, right. right? All of life is about pattern recognition, right? You make mistakes, you learn from those mistakes. It's like uh, Dean Smith said, you, you need to Ralph, recognize it, admit it, learn from it, and forget it. And that was the other thing that Coach K said to me that I thought was so amazing. He says, you know what separates the great players from the average players, right? Like, no, coach, enlighten me. He says, well, the average player always focuses on the last play. How many times have we seen someone go down, miss a shot, go back and commit a stupid foul? Because yep. they're thinking about missing the shot. So the great players focus on the next play. They don't even remember taking the shot that they missed. Michael Jordan talked about this. He says, I've missed thousands of shots. The game's been on the line. I don't even remember taking them. I want the ball again because yep. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make. I think I'm gonna make that winning shot. But we can't win all the time. But you, you can't dwell on it. So you have to recognize it, admit it, learn from it, and forget it. And so by doing things and making mistakes, and I talk about this all the time, that winners lose more than losers. Mm, what gotcha. do you mean? Well, losers are so afraid of losing, they don't do anything. They're right. paralyzed by fear. They don't take risk. They don't make investments. They don't try new things, you know, and they lose. Yep. Winners aren't afraid of losing. They try new things. They lose. And when they lose, they regroup, learn, and go out and do something new. And so, yes, they may have more losses, but cumulatively, the wins, the power law, right. it's like venture capital investing. We do 30 investments in a portfolio. Yep. 10 of them are going to go to zero. Now, if I knew which 10 earlier, that'd be great, but I don't. Right. So some third are going to go to zero and that's great. Because, yep. oh, no, that's terrible. I'm like, no, right. no, no, that's great. Because then I'm going to have another four or five that are just off the charts. Yep. That's the power law. Those four or five will make or break. So back to your original question. Yeah. So what makes Anson so fantastic? A couple of things. So one, he has recruited thousands and thousands of people. And when you're around amazing people, yeah, you can actually tell the difference gotcha. between somebody who's, we've all been there, right? I say, in, I know in five minutes, 
if I'll never invest with somebody. Really? Because right? I, I have the no jerk rule. If you're a jerk, I'm done. Like you're out. No, yeah. no time. Now, I also know sometimes in five minutes, there, right? They have a fast motor. They're super competitive. Right. They don't try to make you feel stupid and tell you how smart they are. They can take complex <laughs> ideas and make them simple. Yeah. All those things. I mean, you can tell someone's got energy. You want to be right. around them. And if you watch kids play soccer, and I'm a soccer player. I love soccer. Yeah. I grew up playing. I, I wanted to play in college, got hurt. Actually, the best thing that ever happened because my first right. semester of college was not so good. So playing soccer probably would have sunk me. But um, I love the game. When you're watching, you can tell. You can tell. I mean, you can look, and in five seconds, you can tell of the 22 players on the on the field, which one's the best. Like, no, you can't. Like, yes, you can. There's just there's that it. Now, on top of that, if you do what Anson did, and he goes out and he watches a lot of games and watches a lot of players, and then he brings them together, he does this great thing. So if you walk onto his practice fields, there's a bulletin board, and on the bulletin board are these sheets of paper with every girl's name from number one to number 30, ranked on all these things, shooting percentage, <laughs> you know, 10 year, 40 yard dash time, first to last. So when Man. you walk in, if you're number 30, <laughs> you better start working. Yep. And here's the funny thing, right? In any group, right? All these girls coming out of high school think yeah. they are the best in the world. And yeah. they are. Because they are the best lives. in their world, yeah. But when they come together, I always say, someone in any group, someone is the dumbest person in the room right. or the worst soccer player in the room. Yes. Like, well, it can't be me <laughs> or could it? Yep. So, but if you're at the top of that list, again, what you, what, what he would see and what we would see is there are certain people who are constantly striving to be at the top of that list. It really matters to them. And those are the ones you build a team around. So now there's a last piece of it that uh, is, is subtle and he talks about this and I, I love this story. So he recruited this wunderkind, this girl from California and she came to Carolina. And look, people have to appreciate that this is a team that for you know close to 25, 30 years, almost never lost. I mean, they lost occasionally, yeah. but they rarely lost. And that's pretty amazing. So. He brings this wonderkin girl. She's the best in the country. Number one recruit comes in. First game, Caroline is losing two nothing at halftime, and he's like <laughs> beside himself. And he's and he's, he's like comes in and he sits down and says, "What are you doing? Like, what are you doing? No, yeah. I don't even remember her name. Carly. Or, she's wide open. Why? Why don't you pass her the ball?" Says coach, "We hate her." <laughs> what? So what do you mean you hate her? We hate her. We would rather <laughs> lose than give her the ball. <laughs> he's like no that's illogical yeah no she's the best player he said we don't care we don't like her and you had this aha moment that it's more than just skill or talent it's how people fit in to systems it's how eq as opposed in addition to iq works into all of this and it was just one of those things like wow that is a powerful powerful story so i don't even remember your original question as i told you i i, I talk too much but um I think identifying talent yeah. is one about reps. Gotcha. Two, it's about having good coaches. And the thing about coaching, and John Wooden talked about this, is you don't actually have to be coached by that person. You can read about it, right? You want to emulate 
and have Mother Teresa as a mentor. She's yeah. passed, God rest her soul. You can do that. Pick up a book about her life. Yep. Read about it. Study it. Right. Read about John Wooden. Read about, you know, Coach K, if you like that. Read about yeah. Dean Smith. I mean, read about people you admire and emulate what they do. Learn from them and take those, those lessons as coaching. And then it's about deliberate practice, right? The Malcolm Gladwell, which is probably on my shelf back there. Um, it's, you know, people aren't born great. Right. Some have certain predilections or certain skills or talents, fine. But what separates an all-star soccer player from the others is deliberate practice, right? If I go out and shoot baskets all day long, I will just groove a bad shot because I have yep. a bad shooting form. But if I got a coach to bring it, now I'm probably still not going to be as good as Michael Jordan. I might get as good as Shaq at shooting free throws, maybe. <laughs> but, but so you do have to have some natural talent, natural ability. And that's the thing I say that you can just see it, right? When yeah. you meet people in investing or meet people in soccer or meet people in basketball, you, you can see talent. Um, so a long winding yeah. answer to what I think is a really cool question about the overlap between all the different worlds, whether it's competitive Absolutely. sports, whether it's industry, founders of companies, blockchain, Definitely. Uh, crypto, whatever. It, it's all yeah. the same. It ultimately comes down to people right, and having great people that you surround yourself with to build a team. Very cool. Well, and going off that question, you know, you were... Um, you said you weren't the earliest to Bitcoin, but you were you were very early for a professional money manager. That's that's for what I would guy, say. For, for sure. For, yeah, for someone in finance, like super, guy. super early, right? And I because I think it's still super early on that on that side of things. Um, you know, how sure were you, you know, in 2017? Was it something where you looked, you know, when you were sitting there, you're like, you know, this is this is it? Or was it like, you know, I don't know, like there's probably a 25% chance this takes off? And you know, that's how great, are we thinking about it? Great question. So look, I, again, I have been very lucky slash blessed. Although I do believe in, in TJ Thomas Jefferson's line, you know, I'm a, I'm a great believer in luck. Yeah. I find the harder <laughs> I work, the more of it I seem to have. Right. So I, I, I do like luck and I, yeah. I do think I, I work pretty hard and, and yeah. some of it might, might be uh, that I attract some, some good fortune. Some of the, yeah. uh, what do you say? Fortune favors the bold. So, or the brave. So I've been just really lucky, right? I've been in this place uh, this job where yeah. I got paid to allocate capital to, to great uh, investors and happened to, again, just by happenstance, get involved venture capital early on back in the mid nineties um, when I was at Notre Dame. So yeah. Scott Malpass, a, a great CIO and I went out to California and we hung out for a number of weeks and we tried to build these relationships and, and venture capital was a thing, but it wasn't like the thing it, it is. It wasn't now. the thing. It wasn't, yeah. you know, Kleiner wasn't a brand name and Sequoia wasn't a brand name. In fact, Sequoia was breaking up. Don Valentine oh, wow. had hired this guy, Michael <laughs> Moritz. Michael was a Wall Street Journal reporter. He'd never done a deal. The other partners were like, Don, what the hell? We're, yeah. we're, the, we're the future. Why are you hiring yeah, like, this kid? On. And for whatever reason, Don, again, God rest his soul, will never know why. Maybe somebody yeah. does know. I don't know why he hired Michael. Yeah. And these other guys left. No one's ever heard from them again. And Michael and Don did a few good deals. Yahoo. Yeah. Well, his second deal was Google. And I actually remember, again, you learn from your mistakes. I remember questioning 
what do we need Google for? There's <laughs> Alta Vista, there's web crawler. Right, yeah, there's all these competitors, right? Jeeves. Yeah. What, do, what do we need Google for? And I yeah. didn't understand. Like today, most people have no idea. You know, there are 1.7 billion websites in the world. Google yeah. owns half of them. Yep. And why? Jesus. Well, because every time you type in a question into Google, if it's never been asked, it creates a new website. And then it puts all the data to answer that question on that website. So it doesn't have to search the whole web. It knows exactly where to send you as you're typing your question. Yep. Genius. Simple. <laughs> genius. But I didn't think of it. And so, you know, we put half a million dollars in this little company called Google in 1996 or seven, and it turned in $200 million. Yeah, that's like, like Jesus. Oh, yeah. There should be a quad <laughs> at Notre Dame called the Google Quad. I'm like, yes, this is cool. <laughs> yes. All right. So luck sitting in the chair, saw that happen. And we did it again with eBay. I remember our board saying, what, you want to invest in a garage sale company? Right. <laughs> it was a hundred X investment. I mean, really good. And it was more than garage sales, right? And and so I had this aha moment and now I've crystallized it into this shtick that I talk about that, look, I grew up in Seattle, as I said, my dad sold and installed mainframe computers. And what most people don't understand, and again, this is a super long way of answering yeah. your question. No, this is great. I, I promise I will get there. So the, future, the center of the universe was not Silicon Valley in 1950. It was Route 128 in Boston. And so the company Digital Equipment Corp was backed with $70,000 of venture capital for some Boston venture capitalists. And they brought mainframe computing in 1954 from governments to companies. Really big deal. My favorite part is, you know, popular mechanics said that they could envision a day when someday computers would only weigh 3,000 pounds. <laughs> okay. A little, little, little yeah. uh, overestimate there. Yeah. <laughs> or underestimate there. So, so Deck and Wang and all these companies got started and they brought computing to uh, business. Then, uh, 14 years later, there was an innovation out in Silicon Valley and there was this amazing movement of the nexus to uh, Silicon Valley and DARPA and this microchip and Fairchild Semiconductor and this little company called Intel that you might've heard of. Yep. Don Valentine invested in Intel and rest is history. And then 14 years later, again, why it's always 14 years, my thesis, I don't know exactly, but I think the thesis is because young people always invent things because they don't know any better. They don't right. know that that won't work. So they try things yeah. like Larry and Sergey or Mark Andreessen when he was 19 years old, yeah. inventing the browser. And so I grew up in Seattle. Mo many, not most, many of my friends don't have to work anymore. They were what? smart enough to go to work for this little company called Microsoft. Yeah, I wasn't that smart. <laughs> I always defend myself saying, look at the picture of the original Microsoft 11. You wouldn't blame me. Right. They're a little rough <laughs> right. looking. Now they're all multi-billionaires and I'm not. Common yeah. theme here. But I didn't do it. And to your point, I didn't see it. It wasn't yeah. clear to me because I wasn't focused on it. I wasn't thinking about it. I wanted to be, at that time, I wanted to be a doctor. I didn't really think about it. And uh, long story short, Steve Ballmer's mom quoted the guy from Deck saying, no one would ever want a computer in their house, honey. Why would you go to work at that company? He has 18 billion reasons why he was right, yeah. mom was wrong. Yeah. Now he can't dance. I don't know if you've ever seen the video of him <laughs> and Gates dancing. It's hilarious uh, at the DevCon. But 14 years later, I'm at Notre Dame. We make the investment in Google. Pretty good. 14 years later, okay, that was the internet. Then the mobile net. Now, the mobile net was big, right? Really big. Yeah. And I remember being back in Seattle at Craig McCaw's family office. And he was famous investor in cellular technology. Um, and 
I asked his family, I asked him, you know, do you think the mobile net is going to be as big as the internet? It's like, Mark, are you kidding me? Ask me if they want a computer. I'm like, yeah, whatever. If ask me <laughs> if they want a phone. Like, I already have two. I don't need another one. Right. So yeah, the mobile net was bigger than the internet. And it changed everything in media and commerce. Now we're on the verge of the trust net. So to answer your question, 2013, 2009, I didn't know about Bitcoin. Yeah. I was again. I was not Brock Pierce, who, you know, 10 years earlier created virtual currencies and World of Warcraft yep. with, you know, uh, money that you could pay online to each other. You know, natural for him in 2009 to see Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever he, she, they is, as this great thing. Uh, and Bitcoin. I wasn't there. Even 2010, 11, wasn't there. 2013, Dan Moorhead, my friend, says, here it is. I'm going to spend the rest of my career on Bitcoin and blockchain infrastructure. Ooh, infrastructure. Ooh, I see that. Mm. So I was 100% convinced in 2013 that infrastructure, the picks and shovels behind the technology was going to be big because I'd seen that movie before. I'd seen it in the 90s. Right. I'd seen it in the 2000s. And that was easy. But the Bitcoin thing, here's what happened. So my friend tells me to do it. He's putting money in it. Some smart people I know are putting money in. I'm like, all right, I should, I should look at this. But back then it was hard, right? You actually literally had to meet someone on the corner and you know, swap yeah, a like stick with money. Stuff, yeah. And there was like $5 wrench risk. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, you had to like go to the dark on. web. Yeah, and, exactly. So it was, it was hard. And yeah. doing hard things is hard. So, yeah. so I thought about it, but I didn't really do it. And so in 2014, I wrote to my investors. Yeah. I said, look, this is interesting. It was yeah. 500 bucks. Put a little bit in, try it out. Yeah. And well, I got hate. I mean, really? hate. Like, oh, we'll fire you. Stop talking about that. Go back and do your job. You're an idiot. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Now, I'm a logical, right. rational person. I'm yeah. an economic actor. My clients telling me, don't pay attention to that. Lots yeah. of investments to make. Yeah. Okay, fine. Like whatever. Now the price went from 500 to 186 over the next six months. Yeah. Like, oh, see, they were right. Yeah. Boom. Then it goes to a thousand. I'm like, Ooh, <laughs> they're not right. They're not right. Yep. So in 15, um, so I have a unique family. So I have two older kids and then the, yeah. the caboose, 20 years younger. But my middle son had always wanted to live in San Francisco, whole yeah. life. And I said, okay, fine. One word, not plastics, like from the graduate, but blockchain. Go yeah. to San Francisco, meet with Dan, go work at Coinbase. Yeah. All right, nice. fine. I'll go check it out. And he goes and checks it out. He's like, you know, dad, maybe it's going to be a big deal. I don't know. I'm just going to go to KPMG. It's safe. Gets me to San Francisco where I want to live. Yeah. Now, so you're going to hate it, but whatever. So yeah. he does that. And he did hate it, by the way. He left after nine months. But nice. uh, the rest of the story is kind of funny. So when Coinbase went public, we had a little chuckle. He's like, all right, fine, dad. You were right. But you're not as smart as you think you are. I go, you tell. I told you to go to work at Coinbase. Like, yeah, but you didn't lever up the house and put all in Bitcoin. Right. <laughs> yeah, that is true. So, um, you know, again, no one's crying for my son. He ended up working at Snowflake and he's doing great. But because yeah. um, he got to San Francisco and yeah. center of the universe. But to, to answer your question, did I see it? Not until 2017. So 15, tell my son to go work. Did yeah. I go work? No, because I had these clients tell me, don't do this. Right. Then it started to move a little bit. In 2016, I was like, okay, yes. And I actually got some of our clients to buy a little bit, to start looking around, yeah. do some other stuff, do some infrastructure. But then a really smart friend of mine said, no, 
this is stupid. The fork is going to kill it. The hard fork is going to kill it. You need to run away. And I'm not a techie. And he had this techie friend and they're like, they were very compelling. And yeah. And I listened and I didn't dive deeper. So I didn't do enough work to really overcome a smart person that I respect saying, right, this right. is a dumb idea. So I didn't pay attention. So, but in 2017, I had my aha moment. And I wrote about this. I wrote this long letter about driving an RV, actually, literally nice. in Eureka, California, which I could not make up. <laughs> That's great. And I had my Eureka moment. And it hit me that blockchain was an operating system, right? The same way that COBOL is the operating system for mainframes, Spark workstations for, main, for microcomputers, DOS and Windows for personal computers, uh, TCP IP for the internet, iOS and um, uh, Android for uh, mobile net, and now blockchain for what I call the trust net. And boom, I mean, literally, I couldn't unsee that. I think this makes sense now. Then I was all in. And and what I, and I when, no, for me, all in is not all in. Right. Like for me, it's okay, now I'm going to put money in Bitcoin. I'm going to put money right. in Ethereum. I'm going to, I'm going to start this firm called Morgan Creek Digital. Yeah. And I'm going to go from spending 0% of my time in 2013 to today. Now it's eight years. It's a long time. Yeah. Now it's 100%. They say, well, what about all your other businesses? Like, yeah, they still exist. But I got good, not so young anymore guys who are running those businesses and hedge funds and China and venture capital. And I am all in on this. And so that's a really, really, really long way of saying I didn't see it right away. Yeah. I started skeptical. Now here's the thing. Every person I respect started skeptical because right. it is normal to be skeptical of things that are new, right? Will Durant says every custom begins with broken precedent. Yep. So when everyone believes something and you tell them, when everyone believes that the banking system has to be at the core of the financial system, right? it's worked pretty well for 800 years, yep. okay? And the last hundred, you know, worked really well for the Fed, but now it's over. And people are like, what are you talking about? It's over. Like, it's over. We don't need a trusted third party anymore in the middle of value transfer. We have yep. code. And a really cool an analogy, and I think, I think Pomp actually gave me this, that he said, you know, when you get lost, do you stop and ask directions? Or do you look at your computer? I mean, your, your phone. Well, definitely you don't stop and ask directions in the South, right? I'm not from the South. And here you say, well, how do I get there? Oh, go to where the general store was and take a left. And then go to where the oak tree was. And yeah. take a right. <laughs> Guys, I, I haven't lived here since the 1600s. I don't know exactly. where that is. So I trust code. And code operating systems are very believable. And now to not embrace that, right? It's, well... I, that's again long answer to your question. I, you know, I, I, I really love that story and like how you built conviction from you know the beginning, first learning about Bitcoin and all the way through. And I'm reminded, you know, when you first told you know some of your clients you should go out and buy Bitcoin, they're like, "This is stupid." Um, it's very similar to you know Jim Cramer in 2010 was like, "Just buy Fang," and if you had bought Fang in 2010 to 2020, you would have 10x your money. And so it's like yeah. almost a very similar like if it just seems like you like they. Sometimes people get the sense you haven't really done your homework and like, that's stupid. But in reality, like some of the things that don't sound, you know, like the smartest, most complicated things are actually really good investments for that well, reason. It's really, again, it's a really insightful point in that 
a lot of times people give you an answer quickly. Right. And you immediately discount that because you're like, well, you didn't work very hard for yeah, that. You didn't you, work for you, it. Wait a minute. Like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Now, this happened to me in right after the global financial crisis. So, you know, price had just collapsed yeah. and there was all this distress stuff. And this, this investor says to me, so, so who are the best distressed debt managers? I said, you know, name three. Oh, that wasn't that hard. Why should I pay you for that? I'm like, <laughs> are you kidding me? Because it took me 20 years to be able right. to give you that answer. Exactly. Because 20 years ago, I made these five mistakes. And then 10 years ago, I made these two yeah. mistakes. Now I actually know through trial and error, like this who is, the best this players in that particular field are. And yeah, uh, that wasn't easy. It sounded easy, but it wasn't easy. It's to your point, it's kind of like when something is simple, it's never easy. Right. It's simple to say big tech fang was a really good investment yeah. 10 years ago. And I use the example of, of Amazon versus Bitcoin. Yeah. Right? People say, oh, Bitcoin's too volatile. I don't want volatile. Really? You do realize that Amazon stock and Bitcoin have the same volatility. Yeah. <laughs> 80. Exactly the same. That's great. Amazon has compounded for 24 years at about 113%. Bitcoin for 13 years at 212%. Same volatility, 80. Because you can't compound triple digits without 80 vol. Can't do it. Right. right? You can. Yeah, absolutely. You can't, right? It's a great point. There is a relationship, a linear relationship between return and volatility. There just is. <laughs> uh, if you want no volatility, put your money in cash and lose it right. all through right. relation. Yep. But here's the interesting thing. The volatility is not your enemy. It's your friend. In fact, I have this t-shirt says embrace volatility. What you want are volatile assets that are uncorrelated with other things. And so the simple strategy was to buy Amazon 24 years ago and hold it to today. And the problem with that is every year in the last 24 years, including- You'd have to deal with- It's had a double digit drawdown. Right. Double digits. The average of all those 24 years is 31%. <laughs> Five times lost more than half its value. Twice lost more than 90% of its value. But when was the last, when was the good time to sell Amazon? That would be never. Yep. Who bought it at the open and held it to today? There's four. Now I, I just learned five people. Jeff, his mom, his dad, his ex-wife, and Bill Miller. That's it. <laughs> That's it. That's everybody. That's it. There's no one else. And maybe there's one or two others. But because that volatility is so, but if you're a believer, in the long-term vision, right? Jeff, one of the great visionaries of all time. I mean, full stop, yeah. right? He took a simple idea. It's a funny story because I grew up in Seattle, right? And yeah. Jeff drove across country, right? Quit his job at DE Shaw, drove yep. across country and crashed on the couch of this friend of mine and said, hey, this guy's a big stockbroker. Can yeah. I go pitch your clients? And his pitch was so awesome. He's like, well, I have this idea. I want to sell books on the internet. We're probably going to lose all our money. And it probably won't be a very good investment. Yeah. But I'd really like you to give me $50,000. Oh, God. <laughs> that, that was the pitch. Like, you're probably going to lose all your money, but give me. And he, he didn't raise very much money, but yeah. my friend did give him uh, 50K, which turned into $300 million. God. It was awesome. Awesome. Would be more if he didn't sell it. But yeah. But he, yeah. But still awesome. Yeah. And there were times when Jeff was ridiculed. I remember, I don't know, it was 2005, maybe. There was an article in Business Week. Hey, Jeff, yeah. go mine the store because he wanted to do 
AWS. And they're like, yeah. what do you know about computers? Go, go sell books, go mine the store. <laughs> right. Mm, maybe AWS is a good business. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Pretty good business. Oh man. That, that's very interesting. Do you think generally people would be better off, you know, paying less attention to the day to day movement of prices or just, to, and just like, you know, holding for the longer term. Oh, price is a liar. Famous uh, line that I stole from John Burbank. Yeah, I believe Picasso was right. Good artists borrow, great artists steal. Um, <laughs> and after a long time, I just stopped attributing it to people. But yeah. but John gets credit for that one. John's a good buddy. And uh, look, price, the daily price yeah. of Bitcoin in particular or yeah. Ethereum is totally meaningless. It absolutely, completely meaningless. <laughs> and people should not pay attention to it at all because- all prices is the the value the price at which two people agree to exchange a small amount of a good or service. That's what uh, price is. Use use Microsoft stock. If you want to trade, you and I want to trade a hundred shares. Yeah. The price that we see on our computer right now, that's the price. Yeah. If we want to trade a million shares, that is not the price. The price will be significantly lower. If I had ten million shares, like Bill Gates, that is not the price. In fact, you couldn't trade 10 million shares right now. So price is not value. Value is what accretes over time. Price is what people agree in the public marketplace to, Any to trade, exchange goods and services. And all that matters with Bitcoin, Bitcoin in particular, right? Bitcoin is the most powerful computing network in the history of the world. It's 1,500 times more powerful than the CERN supercomputer. It's the most secure computing network in the history of the world. It's been up for 13 years. It's been down for like 22 minutes, not one fraudulent transaction. I ask people all the time, when was the last time you had to get a new visa number? Yep. Because visa got hacked, <laughs> right? It happens all the time. Yep. Maybe once every couple of years. But here's the thing. They get attacked 30,000 times a day. You're like, well, how do you know that? That's, just, that's like 85% of statistics made up on the spot. No, that's actually a real number. My son was the auditor for Visa. He hated it, which is why he quit. And they get attacked 30,000 times a day. Now, most of them fail because it still runs on a mainframe. I love this, right? Visa runs on a mainframe. Oh, God. And they say it's actually a moat because most people don't know how to hack COBOL. Oh, that's awesome. The problem is <laughs> when it breaks, we have to turn on a light, the Sunnyvale Retirement Center, and get an 80-year-old yeah, right. computer. <laughs> which is not a lie, right? My three-year-old <laughs> dad can still code COBOL. Most people can't. So, the, but the reality is that Visa chose fast. In computing, you can be fast or secure. Never Trade-offs. Right, it's a trade-off. It's like building a house. You can have good, fast, and cheap. Pick two. You can yep. have it good and fast, and it won't be cheap. You can have it good and cheap, and it won't be fast. You can have it fast and cheap, and it will not be good. So pick two. And, and the, find, you know, suits or anything that needs to be made. That's the same thing, you know, pay for quality. Right. But the key here is if you think about Bitcoin, it is slow. Yep. But that's a feature, not a bug because it is incredibly secure. And so as a base layer protocol on which other things will be built, it's perfect. And owning a piece of that network is maybe one of the most important things of our age. And why people think that the daily price matters at all, I don't understand. All the daily price does is determine how much you have to pay to get another bigger share of that network. Right. And 
the interesting thing was funny. I was on CNBC, I don't know, 2018, something like that. And literally from the time I was about to go on to the time I went on, the price went from 8,000, I mean, 10,000 to 8,000. Yeah. About 20% in, in 20 minutes. Yeah. And I get on and Melissa's like, oh, you know, what, what look should at this. you do? You know, they got the big you know, box this. They're showing this, that. This, yeah. this, 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 big, this big drop. Yeah. And, and it's funny because I didn't plan this, but I said, buy it. Yeah. Like, this is and, and they all looked at me like, what? Like, yeah, <laughs> buy it. Buy it today. Buy it tomorrow. Buy it next week. Buy it yeah. next month. Don't buy it all at once. Buy a little bit now, a little bit then, a little bit later. That's what we should be doing. We should be accumulating ownership. Because here's the thing. In the internet, right? Vince Cerf invented the internet. Yep. He invented TCP IP in the 70s. But it took 20 years for Tim Berners-Lee to come along and actually create the internet. Right. And then it took Al Gore to work with Congress to get a law passed that allowed the internet to flourish. So Al didn't invent the internet, but he gets a little bit of yeah. credit. But Tim Berners-Lee actually invented or built the World Wide Web. Now, Vint and Tim are not rich guys. Why? Because they couldn't own TCP IP. They couldn't capture any of those. Or upside. couldn't own yeah. www. Dot, which is what Tim Berners-Lee created. Now, the cool part is Tim turned that 9,500 lines of code, right? That created the first web page. Yeah. And just sold it for $5.4 million. Awesome. So he's yeah. a little richer, which is good. Yeah. Um, I wish I would have bought it, but I... Ugh. Yeah. Anyway, so awesome. So... Uh, the amazing thing is all the value went to the applications. Yep. Zuck stole the idea from Winklevoss guys right. and said, I'm going to build an app free. By the way, if it's free, you're the product. Yep. And then I'm going to take all the data and I'm going to sell it. I'm going to monetize it. But I don't have to pay to use TCP IP, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Fast forward to today, all the wins, right? We invested in Coinbase and BlockFi and Figure and, yeah. and Gemini and, and eToro and all these great businesses. And we've made very nice returns for our investors. All of us, us, A16Z, Paradigm, Blockchain Capital, Pantera, have backed roughly $300 billion worth of companies. Awesome. From zero to 300 billion. Awesome. But the protocols are $3 trillion. Yep, <laughs> exactly. So, whereas in Internet 1.0, there was no capture at the protocol ever, le protocol level. Yeah. Now, 90% of the capture is at the protocol level. So, owning those protocols has to be part of your portfolio. And this whole that's my whole thing about hashtag get off zero. You can't have zero exposure. But you're like, oh, the volatility, oh, the volatility. No, the volatility is your friend. <laughs> Yep. Because Bitcoin is 0, 0.0 correlated to bonds and 0 0.15 correlated to stocks. So when I add it to a portfolio of stocks and bonds, my portfolio gets less risky, yep. not more risky, less risky. Markowitz won the Nobel Prize for this <laughs> very idea. Yep. hard to understand concept. Wait, if I take cash and I add bonds, which are riskier than cash, my risk goes down. And then I add stocks, my risk goes down. No. Yes, that's the genius. And that's why people get Nobel Prizes because they are genius. And if we just embraced these simple ideas faster, we'd all be much better off. But it's hard, right? Because yeah. we have to embrace ideas which are counter to what we've been taught or sold or, or right. told. For so long, absolutely.
do you, do you think Bitcoin, you know, especially the, you know, we just talked about, don't worry about price, but uh, I'll come back to price uh, for a second here. Do you think the relative price of Bitcoin, you know, we've seen this huge bull, bull run recently. Um, does it say anything about our current fiscal policy or monetary policy here in the U.S.? hundred oh, percent. Look, that's the other thing, right? One Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. Right. <laughs> that's not going to change. Uh, what does change is the denominator. So, yeah, you know, back in 2018, people said, oh, we had this huge bear market. Prices went down 84%. Yeah. Yes, if you're in the United States. Not if you're in Argentina. <laughs> there was no bear market because they could only buy local Bitcoins and the price just kept going up because the um, peso got devalued right. over and over and over. So what people forget about is when the price, again, the price relative to some other asset changes, it might be that your asset is getting better or that the other asset is getting worse. Money illusion, right? Stocks make yep. new all-time highs. Fangs, new all-time highs. No, they're not. If you denominate them in Fed balance sheet, right. Fed flat since the supply slot you there. denominate them in gold, which is yeah. real money, they're dead flat since 1996. No, no, no. It's because the dollar is being devalued. We created 40% of all the dollars in the history of the Republic. That's 255 years in the last 24 months. Yeah. Insane. Really so horrifying. It should not be surprising that in our backyard here in North Carolina, housing prices are up 30%. Yeah. It should not be surprising that the price of a cup of coffee is higher or you know, air travel or whatever it is. Okay. That is not inflation that people keep talking about. That is devaluation of the currency. The government is debauching the currency because it's their only way out of the massive debt problems they have. You can't have $3 trillion deficits right. and yeah. actually pay it back. You yeah. can't. So you have to devalue the currency. And so there's no question that owning an asset like gold or Bitcoin, which are perfect stores of value. Now, but wait, gold prices are down this year. Yes, because JP Morgan is allowed Right? This is crazy. They're allowed to manipulate the price. They just got found guilty by the Department of Justice. They had to pay $60 million on $20 billion of profits. <laughs> I would do that all day. Yes, absolutely. If you would let me make $20 billion of ill-gotten gains and only pay $60 million with, without admitting guilt. I love that part. Yep. Let me pay a fine <laughs> to the Department of Justice and not admit guilt. But so gold has been corrupted be by the futures market. Now, the problem is, I think the same thing's happening to Bitcoin right now. There's a reason that they approved a futures-based ETF, not a spot-based ETF, because a futures-based ETF does not change the demand for Bitcoin. It changes the demand for paper. And paper can, if the banks get on the other side, change the price. And then people who actually own real Bitcoin might react to that change in price, back price is a liar, and sell their Bitcoin. And I ask this question all the time on Twitter. If you're getting ready to panic sell, think about it. For every sell, there is a buy. Who yep. is on the other side? What yep. do they know that you don't know? It makes point. no sense in this environment to sell because paper prices are pushing down the price in the short run. But here's the problem. A whole bunch of people who don't own it to own it, they own it as a speculation and they put leverage on it. Yeah. So someone in my family who shall remain nameless called me and said, they stole my Bitcoin. Like, who are they? Yeah. He says, well, 
you know, I was on this 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 firm over in China, and <laughs> and uh, I levered up. I, oh no no no! They oh, did no. not steal your Bitcoin. You yeah. lost your Bitcoin because <laughs> you didn't make the margin call. But yeah. look, putting an eighty vol asset into an account and putting fifty to hundred times leverage <laughs> on it—that is dumb. It's just yeah. dumb. It doesn't mean it can't be smart. Well, it's never smart, but it doesn't mean it can't be profitable. Yeah. In the short term, certainly it can. And we saw that in January, February, when the price was going straight up, and then when the fudsters hit. Uh, whether it was Michael Burry or Elon, and we had the wipeout, and we wiped out I think 1.7 million accounts, and then three weeks ago we wiped out another million accounts uh, that were over that. Now we still have too much leverage in the system, and there's still too much manipulation going on in the futures market. So I still think we're probably going to be in a bear cycle for a while, which makes me happy. And people are like, what, what are you talking about? It makes you happy? Like, well, I get to buy more at cheaper prices because yep. I want to own an increasing share. And look, I'm still a young guy, right? I'm old, yeah. I got gray hair, but I'm still young. And more of my money is going to go in prospectively than retrospectively. So Definitely. I want actually lower prices at some point. I don't, I, you know, yeah. I want, I want a series of lower prices in an upward trend, which is what we have, right? In every year, except one of the 13 years that Bitcoin's been around, we've made higher lows. We had one year, That's 15, good. 16, where we went down like 5%. Yeah. But every other year, it's been a higher low. What does that mean? That means usage is increasing. It means adoption is increasing. It means the value is accreting. And that value is what matters. And the value follows Metcalfe's law, follows this parabolic curve. And, you know, there are a bunch of models out there. Par parabolic Trav had one back from 2014. That one's been modified now by Tim Peterson, who I think his model's really the best because it has a better decay factor. You know, Parabolic Trav said we should be at 100,000 now. Uh, Tim says we should be around 38,000. So we're actually a little above fair value by the end of this year. No one likes to hear that. Right. Um, because stock to flow model says, you know, 100. Well, stock to flow is missing one thing, I think. And, and look, I think plan B is awesome. I love the fact that he put this model together and it's been yeah. very accurate up to this point. But I think it's missing one thing, which is the impact of what you talked about, the fiscal devaluation of the currency. And so if you modified for that, I think right. you would see a different level. But long term, uh, I saw this great thing. So I was uh, down in uh, or over in Vegas this past week for the Real Vision uh, take. Oh, nice. And 350, you know, crypto people, mostly NFT people and metaverse people, which was cool, not just all Bitcoiners. Yeah. Um, and I saw this great thing. Brian Estes, who has become a friend, uh, runs off the chain capital, just amazing, amazing guy. Uh, incredible, inspirational story uh, of what he's overcome and how he's built uh, his business. Unbelievable track record. And he showed this model that was awesome. The best model for predicting the price of Bitcoin which makes perfect sense, is how many ounces of gold it takes to buy Bitcoin. And if you think about that, well, we call it digital gold. And gold is the perfect store of value versus the devaluing currency. So the fact that it has 99% accuracy is awesome. Now, That's the awesome. amazing thing is by 2029, I think it was 2029, I'll have to go back and look, but I think it was 2029, it actually says that at the at the rate they're devaluing and debasing the currency, 
that a Bitcoin would be worth 18 million. And everybody was like, oh, that's stupid. That's ridiculous. And you're like, let's just do some math. If yeah. the relationship holds, which I actually think it will, and, and I'm not predicting we're going to 18 million. I think we're going to gold equivalents. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Which is a million dollar Bitcoin over the next decade. Yeah. I think that's a shoe-in, absolute shoe-in. And beyond that, the model is very compelling. I'll have to check the date if it was 2029 or not, but it was, it was a big number. I love that. I love that. Um, Mark, it, it, we're running up on time. Do you mind if we do a quick couple of um, overrated or underrated? So I'll throw a term Absolutely. out. Okay. Absolutely. And you tell me whether it's overrated or underrated, maybe a sentence or two. Why? Um, so let's see. Modern mon monetary theory. Overrated oh or underrated? Overrated. Dumbest idea <laughs> in the history of dumb ideas. Look, economists, <laughs> I mean, economics, they call it science. Yeah. It's, it's just a series of opinion after opinion that right. once it fails, yes. you bring on a new one. So long story, MMT, really bad idea. I call it modern monetary yeah. theft. Yes. It's a silly idea, silly proponents. It's, it's basically just code for devaluation of the currency and the dictator playbook. So wildly yeah. overrated. I love that. Um, inflation today, is it overrated or underrated? Overrated. It is definitely transitory. It's, you know, the, the current numbers we're seeing are basically oil prices and gotcha. used car prices because of supply chain disruption uh, and the silly lockdown measures for, for the COVID. Um, so I think long-term we're in a deflationary spiral gotcha. because of the devaluation of the currency. And uh, the best writer on this is Lacey Hunt at a firm called Van Hoisington. And anyone who doesn't read his quarterly letter should. And he finishes every letter with either stay long, long bonds. He's had one trade in 30 years, long, long government bonds. He's outperformed stocks by a wide margin, <laughs> like being long. And he doesn't, and didn't have to do anything. He just plays golf and owns yes. long bonds. And so uh, that's a must read. And once he changes his mind, if he ever does, then we'll have a different story about inflation. Gotcha. And bonds, overrated or underrated right now? Uh, um, I think overrated in that, people, sh other than long duration treasuries, yeah. people shouldn't own any bonds, shouldn't own high yield bonds, shouldn't own, yeah. you know, uh, traditional corporate bonds. Everything's overlevered. Consumers right. are overlevered, companies are overlevered, and the risk of those assets, you're basically buying equity in, in wolf's clothing. Right. So I, I think there are many better opportunities. I mean, we run a fund called SPAC Plus where we use SPACs and do the arbitrage of the treasury pool uh, plus the warrants to make, you know, eight to 10%. That's way better than cash and bonds. I mean, orders of magnitude better than cash. And better. Bonds. Definitely. Um, the efficient market hypothesis overrated or underrated? Um, underrated, but misused markets are incredibly efficient long-term and incredibly inefficient short-term. And it's kind of like price and value, right? I mean, weighing machine and voting machine. Right. Uh, the idea that the market should be efficient day to day, minute to minute. No, of course they're going to be inefficient because you know there are humans involved and there are machines and bots and all kinds of crazy stuff. So, uh, but over the long term, markets actually are quite efficient, and that's why I believe everything should be market based. Right? The yep. Fed should not manipulate interest rate. We shouldn't manipulate wages. We shouldn't have minimum wages. Let the market determine. And price fixing is bad, no matter right. what price you fix. That is a bad decision. Markets are efficient 
and capital markets are very efficient. It doesn't mean there aren't inefficiencies. It doesn't mean there are dumb people do dumb things or even smart people do dumb things from time to time. But long-term, uh, I think the efficient markets hypothesis makes sense, but not short-term. Gotcha. Chapel Hill, overrated or underrated? Totally underrated. And, you know, um, that's, it's not true. People who live here appreciate it and understand it. Um, I think you got to break it into things. So the town of Chapel Hill yeah. is a very nice town. Yeah. And I think if you're young and single, it's a tough life. Yeah. Um, because it's it's really not it's not a vibrant hip hop in a city like Charlotte or right. you know Austin Texas. Uh, if you're a young family or an old family like me, it's awesome. Uh, I love it because it's international. You have people from all over the world. You have yep. the vibrance of new students coming in every year. You got great restaurants and a great pace of life. So love Chapel Hill. The school, awesome, right? Think about this: how many schools, public universities in the country? get 10,000 applications for a couple hundred it's slots. It's nuts. None. Zero. Like every time I meet someone from out of state who comes to UNC, I'm like, oh, you're a valedictorian. Like, how did you know that? <laughs> right. like, it's pretty much the only way to get in, unless you're an athlete. Yep. And um, it's amazing. So I, I'm i all in on Chapel Hill. I'm, I'm a big fan of the, the Tar Heel Blue. That's great. I love that. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I really enjoyed the conversation and learned a ton today. I really appreciate it. Um, where should we send people like on the yeah. internet to find find you? I'm easy. I'm loud. Um, so at Mark Yusko on Twitter. Uh, that's where I, I live. And people say I spend too much time there. I I love it. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the best place to test ideas. Uh, you know, I throw something out there and if everybody agrees, I'm like, oh, that's not probably not a good right. idea. <laughs> if everybody tells me I'm a freaking idiot, I'm like, ooh, I'm onto something. Mm, yes. <laughs> like that's one of my things about investing. If you make an investment and you feel good about it, yeah, you're probably going to lose money. If you feel really good, overconfident, you're going to lose a lot of money. When you make an investment, <laughs> you feel a little sick to your stomach, you make money. It if you feel really, really uncomfortable, you make a lot of money. And life is way better outside the comfort zone. So, right. so do that. Um, so at Mark Yusko is, is easy. Uh, I do answer DMs occasionally. Uh, I'm, I'm bad at communication. Uh, we're also at morgancreekcap.com. And we got a bunch of letters and videos. If you go on YouTube and type in around the world with Yusko, uh, our YouTube channel will pop up. And we do a, a weekly um, series of of. Uh, webinars on different topics. We did one yesterday on uh, SPACs. Uh, I also did one yesterday kind of re recapping everything we've talked about this year uh, from MMT to um, network effects and Metcalf's law. And uh, so those are out there on YouTube. And then that's probably it. Other than that, you can probably find me, uh, <laughs> believe it or not, uh, this weekend hanging around polka stops around your haunting <laughs> hunting grounds at South Point Mall. So, my so my son and I will be out uh, chasing Pokemon tomorrow uh, for community day. So good stuff. That's awesome. I love that. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. We'll put those links in the show notes. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.